remain standing this morning as I read from God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, I read to verse 17. To the church in Pergamum, John writes on behalf of Christ, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan stands. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear. But the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. O Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask that by your spirit, you would manifest wisdom in our hearts, that this would not be just an exercise of information dispersal, but it would be the very means by which your grace is manifested in us, either to justify or sanctify or even, God forbid it, to bring judgment upon the hardened of hearts. Lord, grant to us softness that we might walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. All of our days we ask in your holy and precious name. Amen. I was recently in a conversation with someone about accidents. I've only been in, or only been the cause of one moving accident uh, in my life, driving a vehicle. Now, that's one of those things where you... Superstition has no place in the OPC, surely. (laughs) It was in my own driveway. I was moving. Um, My dad has a couple of stories. He's actually hit two cars in his driveway. Um, And there's a reason for that. You know, most of the accidents you're ever in happen within two miles of your home or parking lots. Those telephone, those poles that are just narrow enough to sit between the column of the front and back door of your car. Um, my dad's been another accident in a parking lot. My dad probably wouldn't appreciate me saying these things. Uh, all of that reflects this principle. When you're on the interstate, for the most part, you're keyed into what's going on. Because high-speed accidents are terrible. And so your hands are at 10 and 2, although they say that's not the best position now. I don't know. Most of you probably only have one hand on the wheel while the other hand is on the phone. I just got to get this update on my favorite, whatever, influencer. 
But when you're in a parking lot, your your sort of guard is dropped. The shields are down, and you don't think, surely there's no way I'll hit something. Oftentimes we treat our sort of spiritual lives this way. There are those places that we know are dangerous or are problematic for us. And so whenever we go into those places, um, we are armed to the teeth. Our shields are up, and we know that we can expect a fight. But then there are those times where we are in places of comfort or we are easily influenced. The shields are down. The church in Pergamum is struggling, not like many churches, with outward assaults because those things are readily identifiable and dangerous and they get put on the radar long before they ever reach the borders of your heart. But then there are those those little insidious theological ideas or temptations to moral failure that are like the telephone poles in the middle of the parking lot. And before you know it, you back into one because you've not been looking where you're going. Your guard is down. As Christ is writing to the church in Pergamum, he says, you guys have done a great job suffering against the the assaults of Satan that have come from without that are in the form of church persecution, formally speaking, technically speaking. But you have failed in these little theological nuanced ideas that are causing within your hearts and in your community a downgrade of doctrine and practice. And what the church in Pergamum needed to remember is who Christ was as the sword wielder. And that is why in each of these letters to the churches, the seven churches, there is a relevant aspect of Christ's character and action that form the heart of either a rebuke or some other encouragement or exhortation. What does it mean that the sword comes forth from Christ's mouth, and what does he do with that sword in relationship to the variety of churches that are in the world then and now? That's what I want to talk about this morning under two headings. I think they're in the bulletin. The sword-wielding omnipotent, and then secondly, let the sword lead you. Let's look at this first point, the sword-wielding omnipotent. This is Christ. And he says to the angel or messenger or pastor of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, as soon as you read the introduction, this preface to the letter, you need to know that what is said of Christ is important to the remainder of the letter. Christ's character, his being, his action is essential to some area of your life. This is why doctrine is never irrelevant. Doctrine is always relevant so long as you take that doctrine and apply it to your life. That's often the sinful disconnect for us. And here these reflections of certain aspects of Christ's character or action drive us to self-examination. So what is this sword? Well, it is a weapon. It's a weapon. And what Christ would have the church in Pergamum be reminded of is that that weapon is either used on behalf of the church or against the church, depending upon their 
doctrine, or practice. And when I say church, I mean visible church. There are times when Christ has, in the history of the old covenant church, Israel, and the new covenant church, all who confess Christ as Lord, there are times where that sword is wielded in judgment. And there are times when that sword is wielded in defense against the enemies of the church. What we learn is that there are enemies within the church. And those enemies are marked clearly by what they believe and how they act. Now, this sword, we learn earlier, comes forth from the mouth of Christ. And this is no literal, physical sword. It is the manifestation of the word of Christ revealed to the nations that brings salvation or judgment. It is symbolic. It isn't not real, but it isn't a physical sword. It is the word of Christ given to the nations to bring judgment or grace. And so we see this sword that instructs, it encourages, it convicts, and it does so powerfully, effectively, and unto the glory of God. It is that which Christ uses against and for. It is the powerful, powerful working of Christ's word to create, to rule, to reveal, to bring grace and judgment. And it goes forth to the nations today. We are a word-based, sword-based church. What else is there? How else will we conquer the nations? In fact, Paul reflects upon this. How will they hear if someone does not preach? How will they have faith if they do not hear? Because faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this word the saints in Pergamum have heard. Look at the result. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's an interesting emphasis. The geographical reality of the nature of the manifestation of Satan's kingdom there in Pergamum. It was a hotbed for demonic activity. And that demonic activity is manifested how? In the warring of Satan against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a hotbed for demonic activity does not mean that they have a Spencer's at the mall. Do you know what I'm talking about? That was really popular in the 90s. <laughs> Where they had all the Marilyn Manson t-shirts. <laughs> and my parents say, don't go there. And all the goth kids, you're like, whoa, who are these guys? Why are they dressed in black? And why are guys wearing black lipstick and painting their fingernails black? This is not what John is talking about. Kids with an identity crisis. John is talking about the manifestation of an aggressive assault against the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think Pharaoh and the citizens of Egypt against Israel. Think Jacob and Esau, Cain and Abel. There is a, a war between Satan and Christ. And the manifestation of those two rules, the church and the world, and as the world was coming against the church in this uniquely 
fever-pitched way, the saints held fast to the name of Christ Jesus. They're ornery in all the right ways. They said, no, we will not deny, the second part of verse 13, deny faith and Antipas, Antipas, sorry, um, was an example of this faithfulness despite even the death of some of the saints. They were governed by this word in this way. They feared and revered the sword that Christ wielded more than the sword of Rome or the synagogue of Satan. There were those Jews who said, no, we're the people of God, and they persecuted the Gentile churches. Christ looks at Pergamum and says, you have survived the onslaught of persecution well. Well done. They were fearless in their faith. They did not deny. And this is a real problem. This is a real threat. And there are some churches that do not survive this. There are many churches who feel the oppression of the state, of that other power in earth that cannot abide unless they are governed by the law of God, the manifestation of Christ's church. And saints said, the saints of Pergamon said, no, we will not deny. What does a denial of faith look like? It is a rejection of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if Christ is not your Lord, well, at that point, it could be anyone. Although it ultimately boils down to you and the things that you desire. So in the place of suffering and persecution, what do you endeavor? To know comfort, to know peace, to escape suffering and persecution. And the way in which you do that in a world that does not love Christ is to deny Christ. But it's always those serious existential battles that oftentimes we're prepared for most. And in a sort of an American environment, that's what we're always geared up for, right? Do not trample on my rights. Don't do it. I see you looking. I see that extra tax you're adding. Don't do it. But then there are all manner of things that we remain quiet about because they really don't affect us in the day-to-day, or frankly, it's just not something we care for or care about that much. That there are those things that are clear acts of aggression against our body and our person that we say, all right, we are ready for battle. But then there are those things that are far more dangerous and insidious because we actually like them. Satan doesn't come to you and say, hey, look, I have this wide assortment of wretched things, and somehow you have to be some sort of sadist to appreciate what Satan has to offer. No, he comes to us dressed in white, and he says, you know what? I have all of these delights, like the white witch, Turkish delight, which is terrible, by the way, but apparently this kid liked Turkish delight. It's gross. But for me, it's what? It's caramel wrapped in dark chocolate kind of sin with a little bit of sea salt sprinkled on the top. You know what I'm talking about. 
a mixing of the savory and the sweet. And it, it comes to me, and there is actually a choice presented because both options seem good. Solomon says to the young men, Lady Folly isn't some witch with a crooked nose and two warts on the side with hair growing out of it. Because anyone looks at that and goes, yeah, no, I'm good. Lady Folly is as beautiful as Lady Wisdom. And in fact, what she offers is far more enticing on the surface until you walk through the door and you realize it's a chasm to hell. Her throat is an open grave. And what she's in fact inviting you to is rotten and wretched and disgusting. The persecutions of the world that are threats that our assaults are oftentimes easier to say, no, no. And Pergamum has done well. The church is very much built by the gates of hell. Now, here is the reality of a church that is built by the gates of hell. It exists in perpetuity for the church that is militant. Maybe you've heard this distinction, the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant is the church that exists on this earth and the saints who profess Christ that are locked in battle against the kingdom of darkness. And you don't become the church triumphant until you get promoted, either by dying or by the second coming of Christ. Reformation OPC will never, even if we pay off our debt, if we ever get a parking lot, it doesn't make us the church triumphant, right? It may mean you twist your ankle less and you're coming into the building, but we are still not the church triumphant. Not until you die or are raised with Christ in his second coming. Which means you're always at war. Now, you know this personally. You're at war with sin in your own hearts. That is very real. But there are times where we are as a body, and these are, these are letters written to a corporate body, a church, a collection of individuals that are one body together. There are times where we as a church will war against the world. And there is a time to fight. And then there are those times where there is really no fight. There is but suffering. We don't have the power or the means or the ability to push back other than by the word. This is what it means to be built by the gates of hell. These kingdoms that are on earth are constantly rubbing up against one another, and there is friction, there is heat. And the more you go out and make yourself known in the world that you are a Christian who is dangerous to the devil, he will come against you. But boy, it's worth it. It really is. Just ask any who served on the front, who went into battle at the head of the army. And it's not just the apostles and the prophets and Moses. Christ to this day needs those who will stand on the front line and say, I will not give in to the assaults of the world. We know where Satan dwells. But you know there will come a time where the church will be relieved in their real estate in terms of their proximity to the kingdom of darkness. But you'll have to die first, or Christ will have to come again. But faithful are those who are, or blessed are those who are faithful even unto death. And so the world has influence, power. And we see this 
we see the sword come against the church. And that is why John is writing. And Christ is saying to the church in Pergamum, I have the sword. And boy, is Christ's sword bigger than the sword of the world. All right, let's move to our next point. Knowing what we know of Christ, we need to let the sword lead us. Now, we know where Pergamum was faithful. But then there's verse 14. But, oh boy, can you imagine being there, sitting in the congregation as the letter is read by the pastor, and they're going, yes, yes, oh, there's a but. And it's a big one. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, we know the story, right, of Balaam and his donkey and how that donkey spoke to Balaam and how Balak endeavored to, well, stop Israel from entering into the promised land. Now, at that time, how was Balaam and Balak, how were they humiliated? I love it. God confronted them from the mouth of a stupid animal. When I say stupid, I don't mean, I mean, donkeys are smart and donkeys are very useful. If you have coyotes, get donkeys. They're vicious. They're mean. But a donkey is not a person. A donkey is but a dumb animal. And there is Balaam, trying to get to the location where he will pronounce the curse against Israel and God sends an angel and stops Balaam from traveling. And the donkey has the wisdom to see there's an angel there and he stops. Balaam grows frustrated and he begins to hit his animal to the point that the donkey eventually turns around and says, what are you doing? Why are you hitting me like this? took him back. The irony, listen, God has a wonderful sense of humor. It's just far more sophisticated than many of our sense of humor. God humiliated the prophets of the pagan God by speaking to them out of the mouth of a donkey. Which is why one elder told me, listen, God spoke out of the mouth of a donkey. Surely he can speak out of your mouth. What was he saying to me? The vessel, the vessel is not nearly as important as the one who speaks. And what is spoken? What God is saying, our Lord Christ Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum is this. You are listening to You are being led by the wrong sword, the wrong word. Because you're listening to these men whom I've already proven to humiliate and also that of the Nicolaitans. They were not abiding by the life-giving word of God, but they were being bound and governed by some of them, not all of them, the soul-destroying, God-dishonoring doctrines of idolatry and sexual immorality. And those two are always hand in hand. Why is that? Because idolatry is always an emotional choice. 
And where are people's emotions most often triggered and stimulated? To the satisfying of our flesh. And this downgrade of doctrine was bringing potential wrath of God if they were not careful. And so, though they faced persecutions, there was a kind of end around that the enemy was doing that was far more insidious and dangerous to the church. It was a compromise of doctrine and practice that led to immodesty and vulgarity. And you better believe the church in America has a problem with this. By the way we dress, by the way we interact with one another, there is an enormous amount of sort of pagan thought applied to even Christian practice. Even oftentimes the music that is sung in churches is better off in a bar room than it is in the sanctuary of God. Because we are, by nature, creatures that crave a kind of intimacy and union with another human being that is corrupted by the fall that oftentimes leads to our spiritual and physical downfall. So that they might practice eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul later, remember what Paul says, and not later, earlier, says there's nothing wrong with eating food sacrificed to an idol because there is no such thing as a God beyond the idol. The problem here is what? These are religious practices that are happening. Don't go celebrate Ramadan with your Muslim friends. Don't do it. Do not eat in such a way that you express sort of parity between the pagan religions of this world and the one true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but remove from your midst this idea that sexual immorality is allowed by the scriptures, either in terms of religious practice in the temples of these pagan gods or by saying, you know, this isn't such a bad thing. And the justification of all manner of immorality because you no longer are led by the sword, the word that comes forth from Christ's mouth. So what does then idolatry do? Well, idolatry represents what? Disobedience, but how? Well, again, we go back to the two women of which Solomon is speaking in the beginning of the book of Proverbs. There are two competing voices. One is a siren voice that leads to life. The other is a siren song that leads to what? The ship wrecked upon the rocks. And we have to choose which voice we will listen to. What idolatry does is that it ultimately, systematically, within our hearts and our minds, leads us away from the path of righteousness. This is what we read of in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, laying aside every hindrance, run the race that is set before you. The hindrance in Pergamum is what? It is a subtle shift in gospel doctrine that is no gospel, and a kind of morality that leads to judgment and condemnation. And the most effective idols are those idols that look the best, that are close to but not quite to the truth of Scripture. And so 
it causes our aim to redirect from that place where God would have us go. When Balaam and Balak were involved in the life of Israel, what were they trying to get Israel to not do? Take the promised land. Because that's where they lived. Satan does not want you to be effective in the overthrow of his kingdom. And so what is he going to do? He's going to take you out of the fight by leading your heart away from that that place that you are to take hold of, the promised land. And the the laying hold of, the, the manifestation of dominion of Christ's kingdom over Satan's kingdom. Satan has investment in this. And the more faithful you are, the greater threat you are to his rule and reign. So what is he going to do? Don't fight today. Go do this instead. But Christ says, there's a problem. Not only is there sinful wickedness to your idolatry, it is keeping you from walking in step with a faithful holding to the name of Christ Jesus as Lord. And whether you're of the Balaam-Balak party or the Nicolaitan party, you're a problem. You have sin. And so, verse 16, repent. But what happens if you don't repent? Then Christ will bring judgment upon you. It's a serious warning. And it's a serious warning that is spoken by the one who wields the sword, the sword wielder. It is built upon this principle. The word that is breathed out by God is to be the center of our lives. It should govern everything we do. It brings salvation. It reveals grace, but it also brings condemnation and reveals judgment. And Christ will conquer the nations with this sword. This sword. Right? If you want to be dangerous, learn how to use this. Learn it and know it and know how to apply it. And so Christ comes to them and says, there are some within your body who are practicing these evil things, therefore repent of these things. Otherwise, when I come, the sword that I am coming with and the words that I say will not be words of commendation, but condemnation. Not of congratulations, well done, but woe be unto you. And so we arrive at the heart of the principle. You will either conquer with Christ or you will be conquered by Christ. He either fights for you or he fights against you. And you may say, well, that does not sound like the Jesus that is often presented. And you know what? That Jesus that has often been presented is a Balaam Balak Jesus not a word of God, Jesus. Now, how does Christ conquer? Christ does not conquer like the world. When Rome conquered, how did they roam? How did they conquer? At the end of the sword, at the end of the spear, by physical threat and violence and taxation. How does Christ conquer? By giving you eternal life, by bestowing upon you grace, a free gift of grace. But you cannot reject the gift presented to you 
as it is offered and hope to know the glory and the victory and the benefit and blessing of being called one who is a child of God. This is a perfect letter for a church with people who are in it who are covenant children. Do not stand merely upon the fact and in the confidence that your parents believe certain things about the Bible. But you must make peace with Christ. You must know who he is, what he has done, that it was for you, and you must make him your Lord. And if you do not, Christ says what? I'm coming for you, but not to bring you into my heavenly kingdom but against you with a sword. And you should go, and flee to the cross. Always flee to the cross. We are, to then, we are then to be led by this sword. And what the sword says as it comes into our lives, as it cuts, as it brings knowledge of sin, is that whatever Christ says, We do not compromise in our belief of it and in our action and conformity to it. How many of you oftentimes will not pick up the Bible because you know what it says and you know that it says don't do X or do the thing you've not been doing? (laughs) How many of you like to actually step on the scales? (laughs) It can do one of two things. It can congratulate you, or it can just hurt your feelings. But you know where you stand. Gravity doesn't change, right? And it doesn't matter if the scale's upstairs or downstairs. Carpet, maybe carpet. (laughs) But then it's all a lie. The scale tells you exactly where you are. We don't like this oftentimes about the Word of God. Because it does reveal to us our true self. Perhaps it reveals those areas in which we have compromised with the world and we've said we've had to do it to keep the job. We've had to do it to keep our friends. We've had to do it in order to be well thought of. We have to do it in order to hold on to this little immoral pleasure that we want sort of kept in our lives. But it's like keeping a tiger. It's going to eat you one day. It may seem domesticated and all nice, and you've imprinted upon it. No, it's going to eat you. It will kill you. That's the danger of not dealing with sin. But there is a reward for those who hear and repent of a life that is outside of or out from underneath the mouth of God who speaks. To the one who conquers, that is, conquering the nations by not fearing and standing up to persecution and rejecting all kind of immoral and ungodly doctrine, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, manna in the Old Testament was given to who? The whole nation of Israel. But this is hidden manna. This is manna given to the regenerate, to those who have true saving faith. And this white stone is probably just another way of saying the manna itself. This confirmation in your life given to you by God that you are his child. Do you struggle with assurance of salvation? Do you say sometimes, I don't know if I'm a Christian. 
It's probably because you're flirting with things you should not be flirting with, and you have rejected some theological idea or calling in your life to be obedient to the Scriptures. You cannot possess spiritual affections and to know that you are a child of God and to receive from him that blessing that creates intimacy and very clear fellowship and be also for the world. Christ gives to those who, and this is hard, This isn't one of those things where you wake up on January 1 of 2022 and say, you know what, from this point on, I'm going to be led by the sword of Christ. Because January 2nd comes and you go, ooh, what if I just click on that? Or what if I just say, I'm, you know, in front of your friends, I'm, I'm compromising some element of your Christian identity. Or say yes to that thing you should not say yes to. But to the one who overcomes, who conquers, Christ gives to you a clear, clear confirmation that you are fed and led by him. And so in all of these letters, you must remember who it is that is doing the encouragement and who is doing the criticism. It's not your pastor. It's the Lord of heaven and earth. And what he says is this. Live in such a way that your life manifests the reality that the sword comes from my mouth, that you were led by him. Let's pray.